This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 303rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is a legendary self-made New York film distributor, the founder of New Line Cinema, who ran the company from its birth in a fifth-floor Greenwich Village walk-up in 1967, through it going public in 1986, through its acquisition by Ted Turner in 1994, and right through his termination by parent company Time Warner in 2008, presiding over the release of a wide variety of culturally and or commercially significant films, including 1972's Pink Flamingos, 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 1994's The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, 1995's Seven, 1997's Boogie Nights, 1999's Magnolia, 2004's The Notebook, 2005's Wedding Crasher, and the Austin Powers Blade, Rush Hour, Final Destination, and most famously, Lord of the Rings film franchises. The recipient of the National Association of Theater Owners Career Achievement Award in 1989, a Career Tribute Gotham Award, and the Motion Picture Pioneers Pioneer of the Year Award in 1995, and the American Film Market's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2002, Bob Shea. Over the course of an emotional conversation at the New York offices of his current production company, Unique Features, the 80-year-old and I discussed his humble beginnings and evolution in the film business, how he came to know and eventually partner at New Line with Michael Lynn, who passed away in March, why his motto was always prudent aggression and his company tended to focus on appealing to niche audiences rather than everyone, how he regarded Miramax, the other New York distribution upstart, which was founded by Bob and Harvey Weinstein, and how he navigated the ups and downs of the film distribution business for as long as he did, why, as he enters his ninth decade, he has returned to his original passion, filmmaking, directing a black swan-like thriller called Ambition, which centers on a young violinist who may be inadvertently causing the deaths of fellow musicians, and which Shout Studios released on September 20th, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Shea, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. Always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and my dad was a, trained as a lawyer. He went to law school at night, I think, and uh, he was in the wholesale grocery business for a long time with his brothers and his father. That's where I was first introduced to distribution commerce. Yeah. <laughs> my mother was a uh, housewife, yeah. and uh, she was doing what m- mothers did in the 50s. Yes. That's yeah. basically the story. Well, I read that probably your first experience 
related to filmmaking? Was it making something to sort of help at the grocery store or sort of instructive for other people? Uh, yes, well, because uh, actually my father and both my uncles uh, segued into the supermarket business mm -hmm. and they began a small chain of supermarkets that were called Big Bear Markets in Detroit. And my dad was kind of the creative marketing guy and my uncle was the tough business guy. But my dad was, it was a, a wonderful father. And when I became interested in movies and photography and things like that, he was always eager to uh, enlist me to mm -hmm. use whatever talent I may or may not have had <laughs> to make some extra money by doing work for the supermarket chain. And I uh, had actually gone through a whole summer training program and uh, circled through all the different departments of the supermarket business to get a kind of an early orientation when I was just I think 14 or 15 mm -hmm. about what the supermarket business was like. Obviously, my father had some point of view about making me do that. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I did was I was a carryout boy at, the, at one of the supermarkets for a long time. Uh, I mean, for a couple of weeks during mm -hmm. that thing. So he felt that I had an understanding of what the carryout boys are supposed to do and, and not supposed to do. And I made a, a short film just about with a 16 millimeter Revere movie camera that I spliced together with a little, little, actually, I think at that time it was actually glue. You scraped, <laughs> right. scraped off a little bit of the film and there was just one copy because that was what came out of the, the camera. It didn't have sound. It had uh, just, uh, it was like a silent movie with, the, with, <laughs> with title cards. Right. Anyhow, so yes. And that was used for the other people learned from you there. It seems, though, that even though you went through this training program or whatever, it was important to your dad that you, it seems like law school was what he wanted for you. Maybe if, even if you weren't so sure you wanted it for yourself, right? Yeah, well, my father was, uh, as I said, he was a wonderful guy. And the thing that was particularly uh, disturbing about him is he was so incredibly persuasive about the way he turned both of his children towards his point of view about a guy who was born in 1911 and as a young father, how he thought his children should uh, learn and gain experience. And in both cases, my sister, who really did kind of have an interest in being an uh, acting and things like that, and me, who also had an interest in being an actor, we both were cajoled in an extremely persuasive way. <laughs> in my sister's case, to take a teaching certificate, because uh -huh. that's what young women did uh -huh. in Detroit anyhow, and uh, get me to go to business school at the University of Michigan and then subsequently to law school because we both had to have the equipment to make a living. Right. And it was at Columbia that you first crossed paths with someone who I know would come back into your life uh, years later. How did you and Michael Lynn first meet? Michael and I went to Columbia at the same time, but he was in first section because of his, the alphabet ate or wherever it was, yeah. and I was in the second section. So that there was never, we really never had any more, I think, extremely casual uh, acquaintanceship. We weren't even friends or anything like that in law school. But subsequently, our daughters both went to a school in New York called Dalton mm -hmm. and were in the same class at a time right after I had started New Line. 
and having severe problems trying to get financing and to, and to explain to people what we were doing. Michael was suggested to me by my daughter that he was very effective in raising money, that his daughter had told my daughter that. So we ran into each other actually in Greenwich Village. Our two families were walking <laughs> and on the opposite sides of the street and we hailed one another. And I went over to Michael and reintroduced myself sort of. And I had spoken to him at one point about trying to help me raise some money, but he was, he was very noncommittal. <laughs> but this particular episode, when we ran into each other again, he agreed that he would undertake the challenge, which yeah. it certainly was. And let's let's go backwards, though, for a second before he re-entered the picture and just talk about you come out of Columbia, you graduate from Columbia, and it seems like between that and getting your Fulbright and going to Sweden, which I think was probably a better alternative than uh, Vietnam, right? <laughs> In between there, you did make your first actual film, called Image, and I wonder if you can just share how that, what that was sort of roughly about and how it was received, because that's kind of a, a cool story. Yeah, it, uh, it was, uh, when I look back on it, I look back on it like what uh, I guess Samuel Johnson said about the dancing dog. It wasn't so much that he danced well, but he danced at all. <laughs> In some extent, the very fact that I did everything up to and including cutting the negative mm-hmm. uh, myself, when I think about it, how films are made now, it was, it was, I was, even I'm impressed, even <laughs> I'm impressed about myself. But what actually happened was I got involved making money in Detroit as a still photographer. And my, my folks, uh, as my, I, I think on my 13th birthday or 14th birthday, built a little dark room for me in their basement. And I would take pictures at dances and engagement parties and, uh, was kind of like the boy photographer yeah. in the Upper West Side, uh, Northwest Side in Detroit. I got a phone call from one of my best friends that I was going through high school with, and he said, well, you know, you're supposed to be the photographer in uh, Detroit, but one of our classmates, a, a young lady named Sandra Roosh, she now had a boyfriend who won a prize that was called the Rosenthal Foundation Competition for the best short film under a fil- by a filmmaker under the age of 25 mm-hmm. and so and he was teasing me like you know you're nothing now here's, here's <laughs> this guy and uh, Brian De Palma happened to be taking this girl out and he won the prize <laughs> so I said well what the hell I'm gonna I'm gonna handle this yeah. so I uh, came up with this idea and uh, spent a, a summer making the film and the whole experience was, was, was quite scintillating for me. I made the film, went to a place called Movie Lab in New York and, and got them to do some of the optical work. I didn't even, I had no clue what I was doing. I rented a camera <laughs> and built my own dolly. Out, you know, I, I didn't even know what a dolly really was. <laughs> and it was going to have a musical score. And uh, I was introduced to a young musician named Walter Carlos who uh, had subsequently did Switched on Bach and the music for uh, Clockwork Orange, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we became quite good friends. And it, it's quite a long story. I won't bore your listeners with all the details. But the essential idea of the film was it was at this time, there wasn't even called independent cinema, it was called underground movies. Mm-hmm. And this kind of qualified for an underground movie. 
I found it, I put a, would you like to be an actress sign on the bulletin board at Wayne State University in Detroit, which is a local university, and a, a very lovely young lady named Martine Allgaier answered, and she said, um, would you want to see my picture? And she was quite beautiful, and I said, there's going to be some nudity, you should, it doesn't matter, because she was a real hippie. <laughs> and so she became my star. And it's difficult to describe in a very kind of a, a simple way what the film is about, but it, it, it was only 12 minutes short, and it was about a question that we are now facing again, I suppose it's uh, 50 years later. Mm -hmm. What we see on film, what's real, is seeing really believing. And how did it go over? <laughs> it went over actually pretty well, and as I said, I had a another kind of crazy experience. I had to get it into the competition before I turned 25, and I was just 24 and 11 months, and I'm sitting in my... I actually stayed up like 72 hours at the end of the... <laughs> just to be sure I got the thing in because I had to get it notarized that I was under 25 <laughs> and all the rest of the stuff. Anyhow, I, I submitted it, and I didn't hear, and I was staying this, living the summer in, in uh, Manhattan, and one day I get a phone call and I say, congratulations, you have won the Rosenthal Prize for the best film uh, made by an American director under the age of 25. And uh, I think it was a $1,000 prize. And, but, and then I said, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And <laughs> said, said, yes, congratulations. But we do want to tell you that this year there was one other film that we really liked a lot. And so we decided to split the prize this year, and I said, okay, and he said, the other filmmaker, you may not know him because he went to NYU, but it's a guy named uh, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> and I, I said, I didn't know him, but I'm glad to meet the guy. And- uh, How was that? <laughs> well, it was fine. I mean, I was I, you know, I was in law school, so I was three or four years young. Right. Uh, but the guy, uh, Richard Rosenthal, mm -hmm. who was, uh, chairman of uh, Connecticut Light and Power who put up the prize money, he had a big dinner party as, at his estate in Connecticut and I was invited and uh, Marty was invited too and that's where I met him for, for the first mm -hmm. time. And then um, that was just the beginning of it. Yeah, the no, it's great. And I think it may have been at about that time as well that you decided to just explore the possibility of going out to Hollywood just to maybe you made some outreach about getting an internship or a job or something out there. Why did you not end up going out to LA and, and always remain basically a New York guy, maybe with an office in LA or something, but what, what happened that could have changed that? Well, what actually happened was that the one film company that I felt a little bit akin to because I was a underground filmmaker ostensibly, and uh, my film, like Image, and another film that I made when I was in Sweden, was being distributed by the uh, filmmakers co-op, Jonas Makis's uh, organization here in New York. I was scared to death of going out to Hollywood and meeting Sam Goldwyn and I mean, all these people. I, mean, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know anybody out there. I didn't feel that my short had any kind of real currency in the commercial filmmaking. But the one company that I admired was called American International Pictures, and that was uh, run by a guy named uh, Sam Arkoff. I mean, what Sam Arkoff was doing was, I mean, he was hiring people like uh, Jack Nicholson and, right. and uh, one of his very strong collaborators and suppliers uh, was 
Um, was it Roger Corman? Roger Corman, yeah. thanks a lot. Yeah. It was Roger Corman. And these were the guys that I really, really admired. And yeah. they were the kind of films I wanted to make. And I, and I was, they were scary or they were exciting or they were big comedies. And they had all young people in it. Uh, and so I sent Sam Markoff a letter saying I was a graduate of Columbia Law School. And uh, I was very uh, anxious to be in the film business. And if, if he would please set up a meeting for me, I would come out to Los Angeles under my own aegis and work for him for nothing. <laughs> uh, that I would just, that I'd, I had saved up some money, which I had, and I'd just to be an unpaid intern to him. And Sam Arkoff, who I subsequently did meet, was not particularly gracious in response to my note because he didn't answer okay. it at all. And, and that's what started off my feeling of independence and just saying, I don't care. I know about the distribution business. Really? I know how to distribute coffee and sugar. <laughs> uh, so I might as well be able to distribute movies as well. Well, I guess, though, the other key part before you could actually go about doing that was you were working, I know, in the stills department at MoMA, the film stills department. I think you were the film stills department, right? And the benefit of that was not only that you're dealing with film all day, but you're dealing, I guess, at, at certain nights and events with people in the film business. Is that how you became aware of the fact that there even was this college film circuit? Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm uh, very impressed with your the, the depth of your research. <laughs> That's you. very good. Thank you. When I got back from Sweden, I had made a documentary there called The Witch's Sabbath about a, a, a festival in Sweden uh, that's called the Valpurgisnacht, which essentially means The Witch's Sabbath, but is just kind of a, a college student free-for-all. But uh, it, it has a lot of witchcraft history involved with it. And uh, I tried to get those two films distributed. And as I said, I got turned down by virtually everybody who had a film distribution company. And uh, there was um, one of the people that I called was uh, Willard Van Dyke. Willard was his first name. Uh -huh. And he was running the film department at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. And so I called him up and I asked him if he had any people who were any producers or that I could maybe connect me with. And he said, no, he said, I showed him my two films and he, they bought Image for their life, for the permanent library at, the, at MoMA. But he said, by the way, the only thing I can offer you in terms of a job is we need somebody to run the film stills department. Would you be interested? So it was a job. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, I did. So I, I was the film <laughs> stills department. And they actually uh, had been given a, a very large closet in, in the uh, Metropolitan Life Insurance Building across the street from MoMA. And I got uh, installed in that large closet with a desk <laughs> and a bunch of filing cabinets and was running the film stills department for what it was. And, and it was in the course of other MoMA-related events that you start to realize maybe there's an opening for films for a college film circuit. I mean, it seems like the, the real, correct me if this is wrong, but the real idea here of New Line in 67 was not that you were dying to be a film distributor. It was a means to get your own films out into the world. Right. right. And, and it was also this feeling that I didn't have to be beholden to other people mm -hmm. to make it happen because it just was not my, my nature, frankly. So one of the uh, provisios, because I wasn't getting paid very much for this job, 
was that I would be invited to all of the film events that the Museum of Modern Art Film Department would have. And so every time they had a display, an exhibition of something that had to do with film, there was always like an inaugural uh, cocktail party. Mm -hmm. And I got to be invited to, to those cocktail parties. And at the same time, there was a program that was called New Films for the New Audience. Mm -hmm. No, it was called, um, this was Janus Films mm -hmm. had uh, put together a program. The film department at uh, Lincoln Center ha had the, showed the program at Lincoln Center. Yeah. And they turned me down. For t they didn't want to take my films either. <laughs> But I did get to go to one of the parties that they were having. And in, in this case, it was a party for the Czech film industry. Mm -hmm. And there was closely watched trains, and uh, I can't remember some of the other titles. but some really impressive Czech films. This mm -hmm. is when art films were really in Early into the Milos, early, Farman, exactly. all that, yeah. And so I, at that uh, festival, I was still smarting from getting turned down by this... Uh, fancy short film distributor that I guess that Janice Films was promoting, I uh, met somebody who said, if I put together a program of films, they could distribute them on college campuses. So I said, I, I have a lot of friends who are making films, and I think I could put together a film program. But I had in the back of my mind, of course, to be distributing my own films, mm -hmm. too. And so I tried to figure out how I could compete with this program of short films that I believe it was Janice was distributing, and I decided to do uh, something a little more elaborate. So my girlfriend at that time helped me to create a, a program notes, and we I got a hold of four feature films, two Czech films, American film, and a documentary. And instead of just offering them like uh, in a catalog, the way colleges typically got films, I created a whole program around them. So we had posters, program notes that uh, we, we designed together. The posters were created, as it turned out, by some of the best poster artists in, in the United States, Seymour Schwast and Milton Glaser did several of our original posters. We created program notes, as I said, with background on the, who the directors were, and pictures and things like that, and they were called Seymour. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we did trailers for the movie programs, and uh, we made, made a whole big event out of it. And instead of just charging 200 bucks to rent the films, we made a deal. We, we charged nothing, but it was 50-50. We got to split 50% with everybody, uh, with uh, all the different exhibitors. And that was how we, we I, I launched New Line. And so this is 1967. Can you just set the scene of where the company operated out of, how it looked in those early days? I mean, it was a pretty primitive setup, right? It was pretty <laughs> primitive. I was living with my Swedish girlfriend who was gracious enough to come with me back to the United <laughs> States after a little bit of travail. And we were living on uh, 14th Street and 2nd Avenue. I was able to get the apartment because it was converted from a rent control apartment to a professional apartment. Uh, and I held myself out to be a filmmaker. I had actually declared some income from rental of my films, uh, my tax returns, so I was able to prove that I was making some sort of living as a filmmaker. And it was a five-story walk-up, but it was just fine. And I 
bought a desk uh, at a secondhand furniture company and started New Line. Yeah. That was it. The motto at, from the beginning, I think, was new films for the new audience. And I, I know you guys, some of the early ones that really resonated with people were Sympathy for the Devil for about the Rolling Stones and, and then the re-release of Reefer Madness, which sort of fed into the Midnight Movie craze, all of this stuff. But can you just explain, because I think those maybe are examples of it, who was the new audience that you're talking about? Well, the new audience was younger people, I felt, as is which is continuing. I mean, there's always been a struggle to get the, 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 the younger crowd. And that was what I felt. I was the youngest guy in the business, uh, at least uh, besides the actors. Mm -hmm. And I was determined to come up with every marketing ploy I could figure <laughs> out. So I was, I, I was like, you know, trying to appeal to, we, had, we actually had at one point, I think on our letterhead, nobody uh, in this company is, under the, is over the age of 30 <laughs> until I got to got be 30. <laughs> but we had those first three years. And um, it was just what, doing whatever we could to, given the programming material that I was able to offer, to make it seem sexy and fun. I mean, one of the programs of the, the American film that was made was called The Virgin President. And it actually had a lot of guys, a lot of people from Chicago's Second City. Uh, Severin Darden, particularly, who was a real classic comedian, uh, was in the movie. And that was, we were, we were doing something different. This was, this was sort of hip. Yeah. And I, so, I mean, the, with Sympathy for the Devil, it's the counterculture sort of music and politics with Reefer Madness. It's the drug sort of laughing at the cautionary stuff. Then you've got a bunch of variety, which was always what defined, I guess, New Line for its entire existence. Because just to give some of these, from, from these early 70s examples, sort of artsy, Films like maybe, or, or foreign, like the Werner Herzog ones you guys were doing. You've got comedies, John Waters starting as early as Pink Flamingos in 72. I think after you had learned about him with one you turned down. And then martial arts was something that I believe became a fixation of yours after going to Cannes and seeing something you could not buy there. So that's where the whole Sonny Chiba thing comes about. I think the thing that's, that I want to, this is all to ask you about, is that the difference between you and the big studios out in L.A. seems like they had to make movies that would appeal to everyone because they're putting a lot of money into them. For you, the idea was that you can target niche audiences and do just fine that way? Yes, of course. But, it, I mean, we weren't making movies. I just had to find movies. Yeah. And there was a guy here in New York who was a very classy art film distributor named Don Rugoff, who uh, started a company called Cinema 5, and he had an incredible advantage, which is he had the best art theaters in the city, besides Dan Talbot, who was running the New Yorker cinema. Don Rugoff, who was a curmudgeon as far as I was concerned, <laughs> he had money. They, became a, they went public, and, and there was not a great film that I wanted to get that he didn't snap up and grab away from me. So I really had to look under, I mean, I, I read variety from, you know, the weekly variety, because mm -hmm. that's what we got mm -hmm. in New York, cover to cover, mm -hmm. looking for stuff. And that, for instance, is how I found Sympathy for the Devil. Mm -hmm. There was a little three or four line squib in, in <laughs> somewhere on page 32 about uh, a film that they had made called Sympathy for the Devil. And because we were sort of like trying to be classy at the same time, uh, it was directed by Jean-Luc Godard. I said, well, this is perfect. <laughs> and 
they wanted $50,000 as a uh, minimum guarantee. And they showed the film to everybody before I, I kept sending them letters and stuff. This is the English producer. And they finally said, okay, well, you can screen the film in New York if you want. And we screened the film. And it was Godard at his, his nadir. I mean, he, I mean it, was a, it was severe left-wing uh, political tract, but it did have the Rolling Stones recording Symphony for the Devil. And I turned to uh, a colleague of mine who was our best salesman selling films, uh, getting the films booked in colleges, a guy who I'm actually working with today yeah. named Seth Willinson. <laughs> and I said, this is a piece of junk. I, I, we can't show this. We can't offer this. He said, are you out of your mind? He said, do these people, they're, they're, you know, the older jerks that are out there that are running distribution companies, this film has... The Rolling Stones in it. These older people, they don't even know what Rolling Stones. You gotta, you gotta go out and get this film. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have fifty thousand dollars, but I sent them a note, and I, which is how I really got all of the films mm -hmm. at the beginning, and I said, listen, I think I can get you at least fifty thousand dollars within nine months, and I'll split with you on a fifty-fifty base. I think I think a sixty-forty basis. Mm -hmm. You guys take sixty, we'll take forty, and uh, you uh, let us have the film. If at the end of nine months you haven't received 50, at least $50,000, and that's only non-theatrically. We won't show it theatrically at all. It's all going to be in schools and, and uh, art institutes and things like that that uh, we're going to show it. But we, I, I'm sure, I'm confident that we can get you $50,000. And, of course, we did, and, mm -hmm. it was a, and people did not like the film particularly, <laughs> but uh, they certainly uh, they went to see it. it. Yeah, yeah that, was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, my first beginning the to hustle. really appreciate <laughs> what, what you did. So the company's evolution, if we can talk about just 1977, you guys get into production with stunts. 1978, you win an Oscar for the first time with Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, a French film with Gerard Depardieu. And 1984, it seems like, was the real, now we're on the map with Nightmare on Elm Street. And I wonder if you can just share this on paper. It couldn't at the time have sounded like a movie that would come to be so associated with you guys that you guys were sometimes called the house that Freddie built, I think. How did that happen? Why did why did Nightmare on Elm Street just after Michael Lynn and you had reconnected and he comes I think to to work here, or maybe right? No, he was just he that was afterwards Michael Lynn, uh, and he he didn't come to work here at all. He came. He was outside. Counsel, he right. was a very successful boutique lawyer, right? Who was representing some very uh, high quality young artists, uh, Yule Brenner and his mm -hmm. and an actress. So he was really on top of his game. I mean, I was just a little punk. <laughs> Uh, even though we went to the same school together. But so uh, he tried to raise some money for me, didn't work. And then uh, when we had this encounter on, on, in Greenwich Village a few years later, and I really need, I was desperate for somebody, he said, okay, I'm, I will do this, but I uh, will only do it if you give me, at my firm, I don't do things without a retainer. <laughs> so you have to give me a $10,000 retainer. Well, we had $17,000 in our bank account. <laughs> and I didn't really know. I had to go back and really think about this myself. I, we had a small group, but we still had a salaries to pay and rent. To, uh, we moved out of my, my apartment on fifth floor on 2nd Avenue and moved into a loft on University Place. And I had overhead, and it, it minor, but it was there. 
But I just decided that I really needed a high-quality lawyer to do this because I had no clue. What was it was mainly to help you raise money. Oh yeah, that was what it was. That was how it started off, mainly to raise money. So even though I only had seventeen thousand bucks, I wrote out a check for ten thousand and I sent it by messenger to him that day to make <laughs> show that I was a big shot of my own. Yeah. And, and so that's how Michael came to. Uh, and what about Nightmare? Well, Elm Nightmare Street. in Elm Street, but there was, there was here again. We were. I was struggling. I, I tried to get. Um, the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail movie, and Don Rugoff snapped it away from me. After I mean, I was uh, Michael White was one of the producers, and uh, and I mean, I did everything I could possibly think of doing to get those guys to make a deal with me. I had uh, I was going to borrow some money. I, I didn't know, but I, and of course, Don Rugoff just walked in and disappeared. <laughs> so one of the producers of that movie, a guy named Mark Forstadter. Uh, became and I became friendly, and he said, "You you know your problem is you just don't have any product." I said, "I know, but I I don't know how to get it." I, I knew some underground filmmakers, and I you know I go to the Czech Film Festival, but that's that's you know this I need to do more than that. I'm I'm going getting nowhere. And he said, "Well, why don't you get on an airplane and go to Los Angeles, and I'll go with you, and we'll try to find some product together." So I went with Mark to Los Angeles. And he introduced me to Toby Hooper, uh, the guy who did Gremlins. The third one was Wes Craven. Uh-huh. And I just as kind of a, a uh, you meet and greet yeah. kind, of, kind of thing. And Wes Craven uh, in a, w- wouldn't meet me, <laughs> but he, I had a telephone conversation with him. And I said, well, what do, you have, what do you have that's new that maybe we can raise some money and make things happen? He said, well, I've got this story about if, if, of nightmares, and you know how everybody has nightmares, but how they're, they're so relieved to wake up from them. This is a nightmare that you can't wake up from <laughs> because there's a boogeyman, and all these kids are dreaming about the same guy. And I said, well, send me the script. He said, well, I, there's some other people, and I'm, I, I'll think about it. So for six months, I was calling the guy every couple of weeks. They, you know, haven't, sending him notes. I, I almost lost my pride. After <laughs> I was, but I thought it was such a brilliant idea. That, and it was something that was so easy to sell because everybody completely knew what the scary part was. And so that was, uh, that was the inception uh, with $5,000 at that point to option the script to begin developing the movie. And the movie, in the end, if this is correct, you guys must have raised, and it cost $2 million and made twenty-five. Does oh, that sound it, right? No, it cost, uh, it was supposed to cost 600000 and it ended up costing a million and a quarter. And I can tell you, it's another story, but the, the anguish that I went through <laughs> and the guys that lied to me betrayed me uh, that we're out we're going to invest we're not going to invest let's see what are you going to do and i ended up getting together the six hundred thousand dollars through a guy named joe wolf who was head of a company called media home entertainment and the only reason that i was able to to get that money together was because home video was such an incredible gold mine for movie production just coming on the scene yeah, right? exactly and the other key thing, just quickly about that, was that had you not fought a little bit to change the ending, there would not have been a franchise of sequels, right? Well, that's a long, that's also a long story, but 
the truth is that uh, Wes was an ex extremely passive-aggressive guy, and I wear all my, almost all my feelings on, on my sleeve. We, uh, we had a peculiar relationship, but it worked. And um, we were shooting it in Los Angeles. We rented uh, an office at Desilu Studios. And the only really one big fight that we ever had was about the ending. We weren't throwing ashtrays and, and cursing one another, but he said he, this, the original ending for Nightmare on Elm Street was it, uh, arguably correct. His ending was that after Nancy vanquishes Freddie and they go run through the house and do all the stuff, the next morning when she wakes up, her mother uh, says, have a nice day at school. She opens the door walks out and walks down the street, and that's the end of the movie. And there, there has always been a convention in scary movies that you got that one last scare that you thought you thought you finally <laughs> we got past the, all of the bad stuff, and then mm -hmm. something really terrific happens that scares the hell out of you. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that you, you want. One thing every filmmaker who particularly is making entertainment movies wants is he wants people to walk to talk about the film when they're walking out of the theater and just to say, well, there she is, she, got, she, she won, that's great, great for her, was just not it. And so I, I didn't really know what it should be, but I didn't want, to, I didn't think we were gonna have a, a film that was gonna end on the, on the right kind of note. And Wes was really insistent that that's how, what he wanted to do it. So we ended up shooting three endings, three different endings. And he, because he was just ready to throw up his hands. This was just, it was, it was, it, it was, it, well, the movie was over. It was right. the last thing. Right. We, and, and we could not figure out how to do the, how to end the movie. So we shot three endings. It turned out that after screening the film for different people, a little, having a little friends and family screenings here in New York, we just, just couldn't figure out how to end it. So Wes finally gave up, I gave up, we said, let's, let's use all of them, which I thought was really kind of ridiculous. But it turned out that that worked out too, so. And it left open the possibility yeah, of yeah, having. Yes. I did not, it wasn't for me so much about expecting to do a sequel. Yeah. I, I hadn't even, if sequels, I mean, of course, it had been happening from time immemorial with movies, but it, it was not, it, it wasn't really my primary intent. It was what I was really hoping to do was just to have a movie that really worked. And, you know, and if it really worked, then maybe we could do something else. I suppose in the back of my head, there was the maybe it was, but it wasn't planned right. as to be. Because who could have imagined it would go over that well, even at that point? I had no idea. And I yeah. will tell you that one of the great thrills for an independent filmmaker, and probably for every filmmaker that's ever existed, except a few that are, you know, the, the Europeans who didn't care, <laughs> is when you go to see the opening night and there's lines lines around the block i was we went down to broadway and and i, I forget who i was with i suppose i was with my wife too and she you know bobby there's lines around the block I said, <laughs> what i can't believe that there's lines around the block and sure enough and boy that is really so exciting and it it, it suggested correctly that uh We'd finally hit it. Yeah. Finally hit it. To the extent that just two years later, you guys became a publicly traded company. And just four years after that, I guess you're looking for 
you know, to staff up a little bit more and looking maybe it sounds like for a, a number two person. And that is where you decided to sort of formalize things with Michael. Yes, what happened was that, I mean, we finally got put together a, a distribution company that, uh, that was, had the right kind of personnel with it. It was still small. We were nobody ever heard of us. And, and, but we had The Nightmare on Elm Street as our first film. And then we made Critters, which we managed to get away from Roger, Corm Roger Corman. And that worked out really well. And it was at that time that there was, everybody was, was making money in the stock market. Everybody was. And so the, the investment bankers were looking for just were just needed to have a, you know, a warm body to, <laughs> for, to do a prospectus for. And we actually got offered and Mike Milken was there with uh, with the junk bonds. Mm -hmm. And every everybody was offering us junk bonds. It was like, as I said, three or four different big in, uh, investment bankers were offering us a chance to do a, 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 an underwriting. And Michael was our was our outside lawyer, and uh, Michael Lynn. Michael Lynn, yeah. yeah. Turned out that of all the uh, the companies that were offering us money, they all were offering us junk bonds, and the, you, so you'd raise a little bit of money as as equity, but really borrow a bunch of money. And the, uh, the thing about junk bonds is that they're usually issued by unreliable issuers like New Line Cinema, and, uh, but the people would invest in them because they, they paid an inordinate am amount of uh, interest. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's like 14% or something like that. So of all of the companies that, were, that talked to us, the only one that came up with, this, with sage advice was, ironically, Drexel Burnham. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't Mike Milken, but it was one of his, his managing directors. And he said, listen, I can raise for you $50 million if you want, or $25 million or whatever it was. And you, all, and you, you have to sell 50% of your company on the stock market. But I, I pr promise you we will get you this money. But I want to know, you have to tell me, what are you going to do with it? Are you just going to put it in the bank? Because if you do, you're making a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. That you, You're going to be paying 14% a year interest. And unless you have a, a certainty that you're going to be getting income coming out. If you're talking about just making movies and borrowing 14% a, a year to make the movie, you're, you're going to, and you're going to lose your company besides mm -hmm. because you'll have sold 50% and you'll, you'll, it'll be no way. Mm -hmm. So I took another risk, like the risk of staying in, in, in New York and not mm -hmm. going to Los Angeles. And I said, you know, I think, I, think I'm going to, I think you're right. And so instead of raising $50 million that uh, I... I I forget who it was, uh, but there were companies that you they aren't around anymore, actually. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. they were big investment bankers, and we took we. But instead of selling fifty percent, I sold only fifteen percent of the company on the stock market. We only raised, I think, like eight million dollars or something like that. But and we did not have any junk bonds at all. But uh, that was the sort of beginning of, uh, that, of a structure, a financial structure, that made some sense for what our business was. And we were very fortunate also with attracting a very talented bunch of people my age and younger, mostly younger, up to and including Mike DeLuca, who got started when he was 19 right. years old. I think I was only 28 or something <laughs> like that, 29. And 
coming up with ideas that were really viable and continuing to to cater to a younger audience and to a niche audience, which is still which is what we were. Well, what what did it mean? The company motto was prudent aggression. Prudent aggression, I should say. Is that the same thing as let's not rather than spend a fortune and try to be like one of these big studios, let's let's focus on things like you guys were doing urban films targeting a black audience before anyone else really was house, doing that. House Party. House Party, 1990. Menace to Society, 1993. Set It Off, 1996. Right. And cornering that market, that niche of the market. Well, I mean, Sam Arkoff did some of those, and there was there were black exploitation movies mm-hmm. that were around, but they were not, they, they weren't, they were a different kind of movie, really. Mm-hmm. They weren't really for a younger audience. They weren't like, you know, Salt and Pepper, for instance, right. who were the stars of, of, of the House Party series. Fruit and Aggression came about because we were constantly trying to raise money. Uh, even though we had an investment banker, we had Drexel Burnham as our investment banker. We ended up switching because Michael's best friend in college was a guy named Roy Furman, and he started a firm uh, with some other partners called Furman Seltz, and they took over our our financing uh, activities, basically. And so I was I found myself talking to banks and, uh, and talking to doing road shows during our different kinds of equity uh, and eventually debt offerings. And I'd get questions. Well, what's the difference about you guys? Why are you, you know, who, what, what's what's special about you? Why, why how do you, uh, why do I want to invest in a movie company? And so I made up this thing. I said <laughs> it, it, that I said, well, we don't, we can't go after everything, but when we find something that we really like, we just really go crazy to get mm-hmm. it. It's just that we like we we can't, we don't have enough money to go crazy over, over after. After all the good stuff, mm-hmm. we have to pick and choose, mm-hmm. and so I just coined that idea of, of, of prudent aggression, and uh, it actually was the cover of our, of our first annual report. And so maybe then, now that I now that I understand more what what it meant, what it means, I guess the key early example of that of going after hard something that maybe others aren't aren't seeing the potential in would that have been a movie that was a big part of my childhood. 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, that's a movie that people, other people walked away from, right? Oh, that is a very nice story. That happened because I had never heard of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This guy, Raymond Chow, who kind of betrayed a deal that we had made for the best kung fu artist of all time. Um, we lost that movie. Big Boss, there were two of them, Big Boss and Fist of Fury that I'd seen with Werner in, in Cannes, and Raymond Chow represented him. It was Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. and, uh, he, it, and even though we had a deal, he took it away from us because they did, we didn't, he wanted $50,000, and I didn't have $50,000. Mm-hmm. Again, that, that, that boogie <laughs> man, $50,000. <laughs> so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we heard about it, and it was around. I had no clue what it was, and I just... And both our head of sales, who's a guy named, who was a guy named Mitch Goldman, and our head of, uh, of production for what it was was Sarah Risher. They both had young kids. I, I, uh, I hadn't, didn't have children yet. 
And they both came into my office and said, well, you know, that the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a movie that's coming out. It had been on television for a long time, but it was the toys and all this stuff. And they both came into my office within, within I mean, they obviously talked about it before, and said, we got to go after this movie. And we had some money at this point. And so uh, we called up the guy who was the sales agent for Raymond Chow, a guy named Tom Gray, got him to come in. And, he, and again, we were the last the last store on the block <laughs> and he, everybody had said no are you crazy teenage mutant ninja turtles what the hell is that and i said to these people these uh, this sarah and and mitch are you sure that this is really something because these guys they want five million bucks to, as a minimum guarantee to get to uh distribute the movie they said i'm telling you and mitch goldman said i swear i'm going to take this letter opener i'm going to slash my hand <laughs> and sign that i will pay you back every dime if you don't if, if. so anyhow we went after we got it for i think three million dollars and that Opened was the first number one. It was the first time it's ever happened. I called up uh, Mitch Goldman that night, uh, the Friday n the m uh, evening that it opened, and I said, "How do we do?" He said, "You can't believe it. I think we're going to end up doing ten million dollars box office." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Yeah, I think we're going to do ten million dollars tonight." And that was like it was a whole new ball game. So your first New Line film to open at number one at the box office, I think, in the end, one hundred thirty million, making it the highest grossing indie film up to that point that time, yeah um and i think it's interesting that throughout all this you're balancing these sort of such a variety of stuff because there's the fine line movies that came along also in 1990 fine line where you are sort of having your art house division i think because of the success of metropolitan what was happening was that uh, the weinsteins were kind of grabbing the art films and uh, I felt like we shouldn't, that, that was part of our bread and butter, and we shouldn't have just forgotten of them. I mean, I, I, I like those films in many cases more than, I, than the, some of the commercial stuff mm -hmm. we were making. And we had actually had a deal, I thought, that was put together by Weinstein's lawyer, who happened to be, also be a Columbia Law graduate in my class, and was a good friend of both Michael's and mine, to, uh, to uh, possibly take over the distribution of Weinstein's business. They were going to be more producing. Wow. And uh, Weinstein, we set up a meeting in Cannes to meet to d discuss it. Michael and I and the lawyer, Ben Zinkin, all went over to see Weinstein. He didn't show up. <laughs> and again, I said, "Who? What the hell is that all about?" Yeah. You tell him to take his movies and screw them. Yeah, right. And uh, so we said, "Let's start, let's get back and let's start, let's make a different division. We can't mix up all this stuff." And that's where Fine Line came. And that was initially Ira Deutschman. Ira, Ira Deutschman. Right. And I just want to mention for the listeners because it is pretty unbelievable the quality movies that you guys put out through that my own private idaho 1991 the player 1992 shortcuts 1993 naked 1993 hoop dreams 1994 shine 1996 which was your big sort of oscar movie of of that era right. the sweet hereafter 1997 dancer in the dark 2000 maria full of grace 2004 we can go on and on and on but i guess it's interesting because for a while the what the weinsteins would say was that their art house movies were sort of 
made financially possible by what they started to probably compete with you guys to try to try to compete with you guys, which was the dimension side of their business, right? Where Bob's do, trying to do horror movies and scream and whatever. You guys, meanwhile, on the commercial side, where it, it suddenly for for a period there it was the Jim Carrey business, right? Yeah, well, that's a little bit later on in the in the game, but that's also that was that was when it, things really started getting exciting. And that uh, and the, the mask uh, was still one of my all-time favorite movies. And at that time, you know, Jim was just had just done one movie, which was uh, Ace Ventura, <laughs> and uh, it was really Chuck Russell who directed the mask, who uh, suggested Jim because of his television show. Uh, in Living Color. In, yeah, living yeah, color. yeah, exactly. And also Cameron Diaz had never really been in anything. No, no. But that, again, was Chuck Russell. Chuck yeah. uh, f- found her. I wanted to have Anna Nicole. Oh, really? Yeah, well, uh, I thought it was, you know, va-va-voom. Yeah, it, was, right, it was like right. something out of, it was like mad comics. Right, That's what right. I thought the sort of thing was. It, it actually did come from Dark Horse Comics, you, you may know. Uh, that is the story for uh, for the mask. Yeah. But Chuck said no. Uh, I I think Cameron Diaz is is, is be perfect, and I I, I I one of the very rare times that I was acting like a, a like a mogul. I said, well, we have to. I, I'm just. I think they want a va 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 boom girl. So could we figure out some way to make her? Or, you know, boost her up a little bit, and, and so they said, oh, "Okay, well, we'll try to boost her a little bit." So, they, yeah, but yeah, she was just so adorable and was so perfect for the role. And and that was earlier in '94 that the mask comes out. Then later in '94, you guys did Dumb and Dumber, and I want to read back to you a quote from DeLuca that I think I want to get your reaction to. He says, "Quote." I was at a premiere one night when Jim Carrey needed an instant answer to whether we'd pay him $7 million to do Dumb and Dumber. And I asked Bob right in the middle of the party, and he said, let's do it, close quote. This is a guy who you had paid $450,000 to do The Mask just months earlier, and on the spot you were— you were in for seven minutes. That was a that at the time I think was an unprecedented uh, amount. The story is actually a little bit more colorful. Than yeah, that. because we had a two-picture deal with Jim Carrey, and this is Hollywood versus the Independent. Right. And I think we paid him seven hundred thousand dollars for for the mask, and I think the, the second picture was going to be a million and a half dollars or something, and his agents started being wise guys <laughs> and so we had decided to do a public relations ploy and instead of sending out our, our i mean we'd heard grumblings about that they weren't it wasn't going to be as easy to get them to do this as just because it says just because we had a contract right <laughs> so we took an ad in variety and we exercised our option for the second picture we'd sent the letter that we had sent to exercise our option as a full page ad in variety and it's coming Jim Carrey in our next... And the agents called up and said, screw you. <laughs> you think he's going to do this? He says, not, he's not doing it for, uh, th- th- for this amount of money or anything else. And don't even think about it. And don't, that, that's no way to, to exercise an option is take an ad in the newspaper. <laughs> well, then Dumb and Dumber had been, in our, it had been submitted to us by four different producers. And we actually had, I think I had the option on it twice. And DeLuca hated it. He despised it. He couldn't <laughs> believe how... It, and the last time it came in, he said, never, ever get me this. I don't want to, I'm not having to have anything to do with this movie. But we had an, we had an option uh, with, uh, or a deal with National Lampoon. And I thought, even if the script was 
less than perfect by a very huge margin. <laughs> but the title, Dumb, Dumb, National Lampoon's Dumb and Dumber, we got to be able to do something with mm -hmm. it. And then I saw the director's cut of, uh, of The Mask. Mm -hmm. I said, this is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the name of the guy, who, the producer. He called me up and he said, we have... I bought the option for Dumb and Dumber. I said, we don't want it. We don't want it. DeLuca won't take it. I don't want I, I just don't. He said, listen, not only do we have the option, but Jim Carrey wants to do the movie. And that was the whole background on how this all came. I said, well, I said listen, man, if Jim Carrey wants to do this movie, I've just seen The Mask. Mm -hmm. And it is an unbelievable dynamite movie. I don't care, if, you know, is that old expression, if you're, uh, this guy could read the phone book and right. people would come. That was really how I felt about Jim Carrey. He, if he read the phone book, <laughs> it was going to be great. Right. So, and this was, this was not the phone book, but it, it had its problems, there's no question about it. And so uh, that all came about uh, when uh, they said, well, what does Jim Carrey want for you see, his agents now want $7 million. Said, well, we have an option. They said, yeah, we'll forget that. Just, and we were at a screening at the Directors Guild, and he, uh, DeLuca and Mike uh, Richard Saverstein were there, and they both said, listen, you, you got to make a decision. Are we going to spend $7 million to get Jim Carrey, even though we have an option? Or, I mean, you want a lawsuit, or do you want to make a movie? And he said, you got to make a decision right now. And we actually walked into There was a phone booth right there in the lobby, and we called up the agent, and I said, Okay, seven million. You got a deal? He said, "Yes, you got a deal," and that was it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I want to just note that you guys were early betters on a lot of auteurs. Fincher with Seven, Paul Thomas Anderson with Boogie Nights, Gary Ross with Pleasantville, on and on, and some of their second movies too. Magnolia for Paul Thomas Anderson. The comedies I know started to become very successful betting on people be that were not, you know, ex sort of SNL cast-offs, whether it was Mike Myers with Austin Powers or Adam Sandler with Wedding Singer. But the, the really interesting thing that I, I wanted to bring up is that with action movies, Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie Chan, Money Talks with Chris Tucker, and then this idea, how do you, where, where does, who comes up with the idea to put those two guys together for, for Rush Hour? Uh, Which I think was your biggest movie to date, financially, when it came out. Well, I have to say, their big vote of a vote of appreciation. It's, it's not like I never thought I was going to do it all. I had other ideas. I really wanted to be a director. The, the truth be told, but I was doing this because I because of this independence. That's yeah. really what I believed in. But uh, the other thing I believe in a lot is that. If you're going to work with people, they should feel like they're your partners and, and, not, and not be an ashtray thrower. So uh, I th we, we actually had a fantastic development and a team of people who really had the, the zeitgeist of, of their generation incredibly clear in their minds. And even though they may, have, may or may not have had other issues to, it, I was able to get I could get around the issues because it just it, it didn't really matter to me I wanted people to say or to feel when they got up in the morning I can't wait to get to, to work nobody's going to scream at me there's going to be uh, there's, it's going to be a really collegial organization and if there was any time that I 
really ever got mad at employees, which was very rare. It was only because the collegiality had been undermined by a boss or something uh -huh. like that. And so, um, and just to, to note, that, was, that includes Mike DeLuca, Toby Emmerich, Donna Langley, uh, Mary Parent, Paul Bruchek. I mean, I could, there's, there's, I could amazing. give you a whole farm system of people that went on to run. Well, yeah, but so did, you know, I mean, Roger Corman did that yep. and Sam Arkoff did that. So in a way, I suppose I learned from from what they did. Mm -hmm. that don't don't let Warner Brothers or, or Columbia Pictures or, or 20th Century Fox tell you what to do. And as I've often said, one of the things that nobody has a monopoly on creativity. Right. And that's really the exciting thing about being in the movie business altogether. Anybody can do it. You just have to be, have to have guts right. and be right. I'm going to back up for yeah. a second because you're asking me who came up with the idea for Jackie Chan with Rush Hour. There was a producer named Arthur Sarkisian, and Arthur Sarkisian had the rights to Rush Hour for some reason. Arthur Sarkisian had betrayed a business arrangement that we had. He gave a film that he controlled over to somebody else, and he said, "The next film," and we got really mad at him because mm -hmm. we, uh, and he, so he said, "The next film I get." is going to be rush hour and uh, what, 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 I, I'm going to let you guys have a shot at it. And so that's how it, it uh, kind of, as I recall, Got all it. came together. So it's the 1990s and you, you, you guys are, are booming. And how do you even wind up talking to Ted Turner? I had uh, seen Ted Turner at a, the, something that was in New York that Drexel Burnham used to put on called the Predator's Balls. And they were these huge things with all of the companies that, that had sold junk bonds and all this it would come together for. And one of the speakers at one of these, and I was a little jerk. I was just a little company. We didn't even sell any junk bonds. But because of the, the one guy who was on our board, who was a Drexel Burnham uh, manager, he included me. It was part of you know, come along. I was, mm -hmm. but I was really kind of a mascot. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know who these guys were. I didn't know uh, you know, Donald Trump or any of these people. They were all running around raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. But when I saw Ted Turner, he was uh, give his speech, his speech, and also I knew about some of his interests in movies. First of all, I was a bit drunk, I, I think, when he gave the speech. But he was so funny <laughs> and, and and so charming that I asked uh, somebody if, if, if they could possibly introduce me to him. And the guy who I asked, who, had, he, who had, was a filmmaker as well, said he would, but he really didn't do anything for God. One day, these guys from Roy Furman's company, Furman himself, said, would you like to meet Ted Turner? This is after they came to represent us. And I said, yeah, I've, I've been trying to meet the guy for a year and a half. And I can you, can you work it out? He said, yes, well, he's, he said that he would, he would like to meet you. I said, fantastic. So Michael Lynn and I and this guy, whose name is Michael Guerin, who, who worked for, for Roy Furman, get on a commercial plane and fly to Atlanta to meet Ted Turner. And we go in to meet the guy. And he was really in his prime, too. I mean, we went into his office. It, it was papered with magazine covers of him winning the America's Cup and this and that. And he was just so 
oozing incredible enthusiasm and charm. So we're sitting down with him and a couple of his, uh, his financial people, and Michael and I, and uh, this guy, Michael Guerin, and they're talking, and I'm talking, and I'm wildly excited to meet this guy. And uh, so in about, after about 15 minutes, Ted says, well, let's do it. And I said, what do you, what do you mean, let's do it? He said, well, come on, let's, let's, let's just make the deal. I said, well, excuse me, could I just talk to my, my colleagues? So we get up, and I, we go outside, and I said, what the bloody hell is he talking about? <laughs> let's do it. He said, well, yeah, you know, he's, he came here to talk. To, I said, I came here to meet the guy. I didn't know it was, it was, a, it was an audition or something. I said, you know, I mean, what do you think? He said, well, it's up to you, but uh, you, you, I mean, I was the largest shareholder in the company. He said, he said, let's, you know, and I had no thought at all about selling a new line. I mean, that was not what I, I it wasn't, I, we had a company, it was great. I'm, we're going to, you know, make movies and it's going to be big. And what, what do I want to sell the Ted Turner for? <laughs> and so I said, well, I don't know if I want to do that. And he said, well, it's up to you, you guys, you know. So we buffed and said, Ted, we, you know, I, I need, uh, I thank, appreciate your welcome and everything, and I'd like the conversation. Let me think about it. So I w came back to uh, Los Angeles with everybody. Michael said, "Listen," I said, "What do you think we should do?" He said, "I, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to tell you what I think we, you, you should do. I think you should think about it. It's your company, effectively." And uh, you just decide, you just think. So I spent the weekend thinking about it, and I came to the conclusion that if I was running a company, that there was no way that I could take this little independent company and turn it into something really big time unless we really had a really major backing behind us. And I, and, and I was getting older, and I'd been doing this for 10, 15 years by that point, I guess, and, and maybe it was more. Even more, yeah. It's the 90s, so 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, most of my time was wasted trying to raise money. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just a constant thing. I had, you know, coming up with ideas, fruit and aggression, this and that. Why, why do we, what, what's special about you guys? How are you going to get the big stars? What are you going to do? I said to myself that I don't think that I can make this into an a billion dollar company in the next five years because I, I don't exactly know how to do it and, and it's not and, and there was a lot of independent companies that started up went public raised big big money and and, and, and lost it all and there was a, there was always that thing about you, you, you and I of all of the people the uh, the Titans. Ted was the only guy that really amused me, mm -hmm. and that he, I really had a, a, I really thought he had independent spirit. And he liked three things: he liked movies, he liked news, and he liked sports. And that was it. And he had flirted with other movie companies, and they had been sold or and uh, basically. And we were the kind of, I suppose, the last guy on his list. But then, so it was, it was there again. It was like with Raymond Chow or, or any of these, or with Wes Craven. Mm -hmm. We we weren't the first person you thought about. <laughs> so I said, okay, let me spend a little more time with Ted. So I said, let's pursue a, a, an arrangement. And the thing that really got me uh, on his side completely 
was I was making lunch for him at our house one day, and we were talking about stuff. And I said, listen, Ted, the truth of the matter, I was making lists of things I had to talk to him about. And I, I said, the truth is, though, that I just want to know what would happen. I mean, there, we, we've been making movies for 10, 15, maybe $20 million, but we may, may want to make a $35 million movie, for instance. Is, is there going to be any kind of restrictions? He said, listen, Bob, I don't care if you make an $80 million movie. Just make one that's going to make money for me. You, I want, he said, I want a team that is always swinging for the bleachers. You get me some home runs, I, I'm going to finance it, and it's, it's going to be a wonderful partnership. And uh, But the side story to that is we ended up shaking hands and making the whole deal happen, and Ted was a real prince about it. But the first thing that he, he did, he said, I want you to come out to my ranch in Montana, and my new wife, Jane Fonda, is going to be there, and you and Michael come out, and we're going to be partners together. So I said, okay, that sounds fantastic. So we all flew out to Montana to spend a long weekend with, with Ted and Jane. But he was, he was uh, a madman about stuff. <laughs> I mean, he, he, they came and woke us up at 6 o'clock in the morning with coffee. He and Jane, I met Jane Fonda knocking on your door. <laughs> and and uh, we... we uh, and it would be like breakfast at seven, Bob. You know, you, 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 is an hour enough for you to get dressed? I mean, I'm sure it is. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, sure, I'll be there. So yeah, we have breakfast at seven, seven to eight. Then we'd go skeet shooting uh, on his property for an, for an hour, an hour and a half. Then we'd go out and shoot shooting quail, riding on Tennessee Walker horses with, with, with hunting dogs and stuff. Then we'd be at lunch, and then. I, mean, I was completely whacked out by that time. And he said, if we go, fi go fishing. And he'd go and get in these electric boats and go big mouth bass fishing on his property. So this first weekend, we're, well, he and I are just walking together. And I was really waxing poetic. I said, among other things, I said, Ted, you know, this is really good. I, I'm, I really feel like the partnership is going to really last. And I... I, I really feel, you're really making me feel like I'm a real partner. I, I mean, I just don't even, you know, think that I sold you anything. I just feel like I'm your partner. He stopped me, <laughs> turned me around, looked at me and said, Bob, we are partners, but don't kid yourself. You definitely sold me the company. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like the upside was that you did have the ability to make bigger movies than you, or bigger budgeted movies, but the, I, I wonder... The first movie we made yeah. after that, yeah. with his money, was Long Kiss Goodnight, and it was a four and a half million dollar script. Yeah. We made, we made series, we made three, we made house parties, we made three house parties for four and a half million dollars, right. and it was just the script was four and a half million dollars, and on top of that, he, Jane hated it, and he didn't like it too well himself. <laughs> but there was, it was, I mean, there was, he was such a, you know, a stand-up guy about this stuff. But yeah, we, then, we, then we started really going. I, obviously, at that time, you couldn't have imagined that there's going to come a point where he's going to sell to AOL Time Warner, right? I was there. It, was, it all happened. He met, he met Steve Case. We had the whole senior management of Time Warner, which was taken on a trip to China for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And it culminated with the Fortune, Fortune magazine having this big conference in Beijing of worldwide 
business or something. I mean, we just we, we just were part of the team. Yeah. And that's where he met Steve Case, and uh, uh, that's not not he, but uh, oh, that was incredible. I mean, Ted, that was when Jerry Levin had, 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 uh, was in, in the picture because Ted had sold the, his company to Jerry Levin. Right. So well, when you first learned that the that AOL had acquired Time Warner, which you were now under at that point. It seemed I, I've read that it was initially this is great news, right? Like this is I guess for stock reasons and various other things. It initially it was a good thing. Well, at that point, I mean, we, the wonderful thing about this timeline is that nobody ever bothered us, right? And we were and nobody understood us. And when Ted sold to Time Warner. The first thing Levin wanted to do was to was to spin off New Line, which would have made perfect sense. I mean, they, they needed us like I needed a hole in the head because and they already had they had Warner they Brothers. Had Warner Brothers. Right. They, 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 so they, why are they going to need two? So you, and you guys, the the feeling was no hard feelings. Let's just get at, let's separate. Our, it's not there's no it doesn't make sense. I it did not make sense. They hated us. The Warner Brothers guys. I, I mean, they, let me I, intuiting it, but I it wasn't really a friendly. Uh, it wasn't, you know, aggressive, but they had better deals. They had better international deals. They had better television deals. They had better home video deals. They had better everything. But the reason that we were still there is because of Ted. And Ted said, you guys are my bench strength. And I think he was a little worried about what might happen, with, with that, that Hollywood was possibly going to be a, a, a challenge. But part of it was also that the they had... TBS and all these cable channels that needed content, right? So I guess for a while, that's how they justified having both places, right? Both Warner Brothers and you guys? The first thing, they wanted us to sell the new line. We did a, we did a road show with Roy Furman running around all over Europe trying to get uh, uh, people. But Ted insisted that if they would, he would not sell the new line unless he got at least $3 billion for it. Which was never going to happen. It was not going to happen. So he was just... Well, so so, but and after that, you know, I think that Jerry and I mean, they they knew that Ted was a bit of a maverick, <laughs> and they so they made him vice chairman of the of the company, but they were not interested in his way of doing business. And you know, I think that there was I don't it was never discussed with me, but it seemed like there was there was some uh, skepticism about you know where he was going to fit into the overall organization anyhow. So they, we just kind of, they just kind of left us there. And so the way we, and the, what happened was, though, that it, what we, were, we requested a budget at the beginning of every year. And at the end of the year, or, 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 anyhow, there would be a budget meeting. We'd outline what our films had done for the previous year. We, we made money for the company every year with the exception of one, which was the year that uh, we did Little Nicky. 2000 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh and and but other, that, and that was a whole other story yeah. but we ended up just making money for them and so and we didn't say we want to have a you know 10 billion dollars <laughs> except we did once <laughs> but but they said fine and we was we uh, jeff fucus and i were we were on very good terms Michael, everybody loved Michael. It was it was a perfect uh, combination. He was the the the, the, the sanguine uh, voice of reason, and I was the guy, you know, with hair all over the place, <laughs> and making a lot of noise and stuff, which wasn't really true. Right. It was a little bit of an act that we both were playing. Right. He, Good cop, bad cop. Uh, it yeah. was totally like that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, but it's kind of amazing that 
you're in this new corporate situation and it's at that moment that you guys say we're going to bite off probably the biggest thing that you'd ever I mean how could it not be the biggest thing by far that you'd ever bitten off with Lord of the Rings no question about it but it's the first time I ever ran into something that had the same inchoate excitement that A Nightmare on Elm Street did took me 40 years wow almost well there were some great movies along the way but that was the one that i said everybody knows this series of books the weinsteins bought them i i I mean i did i have one of my many twangs of 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 regret and jealousy yeah i did i really thought you know that was a great idea well because the property had obviously been around forever right saul zantz to the weinsteins to everything but just, I, I know this is probably the story you're you're most sick of telling, but I think it's essential to the to the plot here. Well, I think it's just, it's. I'm glad to tell it one more time because it, I just want to get it right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Tom Freston told me at one point that he was talking to some other people after we had made the deal for the films, and they were saying, "Oh, that Bob Shea is such an a-hole. He doesn't know what he's doing." And yeah, he came in. He's going to sink the whole goddamn place. It was not possible that that was going to happen. We could have had serious financial repercussions. But when I told Rolf Mitwig, who was head of our international company, and that our whole business philosophy just, it it wasn't like sat down and worked out, but that was how we got financing. We couldn't get it from, on on a timely way from the typical sources. So what we financed, we financed our productions through pre-sales. Of international, foreign. International, yeah, yeah, just just foreign. We almost never took on a movie unless international said yes, it's okay. And I will tell you, Rolf Mitwick a couple of times said, I don't want it. Take it somewhere else. I'm not. Saying, and I said, "Well, if you're working for me, right, you, know, right, I, right. you can't say that." When he, I mean, we, we we actually got along quite well. But but the point was that he he went out and checked before we, before we, the, anything was signed. And these guys were going. We had uh, the biggest local companies like like New Line in every major con- territory in the world who were not only going to take one movie, they had to take three movies, and it was they were paying the biggest guarantees they had ever paid before to get to get, to get this film well, let's step back for just a second though because i think this is the ultimate middle finger to harvey weinstein which must have felt good that he's not able to get peter jackson to he, he's insisting right one movie and a limited budget and you're and peter jackson how, how does peter jackson then when it's a weinstein movie end up in your office I have uh, I have no tears for Harvey Weinstein, but I can tell you that uh, he thought that he, he had really aced out when he sold his company to Disney. And if you read some of the other articles about what, what happened there, I think that uh, Mike Eisner did not trust him. And that when Harvey Weinstein said, I'm going to make two movies and they're each going to be Seventy-five million dollars each. I think Eisner said you make one movie for eighty-five million, and that's just it. Nobody ever told me this, and it's just a little bit that I've surmised and yeah. from where I've read. And I think Harvey went to Peter Jackson and said, "I'm going to make one movie for." And Jackson went ballistic, and in that sort of passive-aggressive way that New Zealanders know how to do, 
and Harvey was forced into saying, I'll give you one week to get somebody else who will put up the 85 or put up the money for two movies, and if you don't, if you can't find somebody who'll do that, we're going to make this for one one eighty-five million dollar movie. He was only willing to let him explore other options, though, because he would still insist on a percentage of whatever the right. Yeah, well, well, he said, yeah, he said, listen, but if you if you sell if I have to sell this to somebody else, I I will do it. Because that's the deal I'm making with you. But one of the things is going to be is going to you know, I want five percent of first dollar gross for Miramax, and DeLuca and um, Mark Ordesky, who was a good friend of Peter Jackson's from the Peter Jackson wrote a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> uh, like the Elm Street four or five or something like that, yeah. and actually came to Los Angeles to try to pitch it to us. And he ended up getting to be friends with Mark Ordesky and was sleeping on Mark Ordesky's couch and stuff. So they were good. So it was Ordesky and, and DeLuca came into my office and said, are, are, we interested, are we interested in Lord of the Rings? I said, absolutely. He said, well, it's available. It's going to be available for one week, but I just want to tell you something. You're going to have to give Harvey Weinstein 5%. I said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to, we're not going to give Harvey Weinstein. I'm going to, I'll tell you what, I'll give Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, right. So they, they threw up their hands. They said, we knew that this was your reaction yeah. and they walked out. But at the same time, DeLuca and I were having some serious disagreements about production decisions. And he and Michael uh, was even more adamant that we weren't doing anything. We weren't making commercial movies anymore. And I, when I saw what Peter Jackson, when we, well, what happened was that a week later, Ordesky came into my office. He said, "Jackson is coming in tomorrow. Would you like to hear? I'm just doing this as a courtesy. Would you, would you sit in on the on the pitch meeting?" So I said, "Sure, I would," and and I did. And I, uh, I was in personal turmoil about this, my situation with Mike DeLuca, and we, I sit down and I listen to these guys and watch what they put together and it was unbelievably exciting and Peter Jackson I knew what he had done but that's a whole other story but what he had done for this he said I can make these movies for 65 million dollars each at this point he's pitching you on just two two, just two three was never mentioned up to this point and so he said uh I can make these two movies. It's going to, they're going to be sixty-five to seventy-five million dollars each, and uh, he did this whole thing with uh, Ian McClellan and a pitch reel. And then they came in with these giant eighty by a hundred inch color blow-ups of the of the locations. And I could take or leave locations, but I've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. I had no clue what it was like in, in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And I, you see things that you just. Uh, I mean, the closest I even come a little bit was somewhere in Iceland. I'd mm-hmm. never seen anything like this mm-hmm. stuff. And then I'm thinking back about the arguments I'm having with Mike DeLuca. And I'm thinking back about what, how international is dying to, to, to uh, looking for stuff, and they're getting kind of irritated that we're not giving, coming up with inter- international movies. And then I know we have a, a 250 or $300 million production budget from Time Warner, and that, that it's, it's only going to be... Uh, 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 we have the money to make these movies in our budget. 
uh, and I and it was I misunderstood, but it was going to be over. I thought it was going to be over three years, and it turned out we had to make all three of them at once. But mm-hmm. that was that came out. That right. was cost saving, right? It, well, it came. It, it, it was because you couldn't. The people were going to get old. Yeah. Couldn't wait a year and a half to to do it. Anyhow, this is a long story, and I've said, uh, to make it to make it short. So, and I said, we definitely, we desperately, this desperately need something. And I don't, it's not just one movie I'm going to grab away. I'm, it's going to be three. It's I, And I said, so I said to him, that was the classic. It was your idea. Moment. I said, I, I'm sorry? It was your idea that it'd be three. Well, I, why, I mean, I, I take five. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> well, in fact, some people are doing five. Right, right, right. But yeah, so we, I, I said, well, there are three books. Why don't, why, why don't we do three of them? Because for, for me, that was three. That was suddenly, you know, it was a shining star for three years. But just to play the, the devil's advocate here, the downside, which people felt the risk would be, is that if the first one flops, the other two aren't going to do any better, right? That is correct. And so what, well, what if, even though we had the we had well, let me let me, let me fill in the, the sure. blanks there, between the pre-sales and the two tax deals, one in Germany and one in New Zealand, mm-hmm. I think we had like eighty percent of all three pictures covered. So you guys would have been okay. So we we could have we we weren't going to it wasn't going to sink anything. Right. However, that you were, what you are saying is correct. First of all, we would have had a lot of pissed off buyers yeah, inter- yeah. internationally. Second of all, those two, the, the two movies that were the second and third movie that were made were going to be were going to have to be shown, but they were because they were done. But they were obviously going to be not going to be wildly successful. The first one was inept. So it was that was what the risk was. I mean, you don't get it anything risk free, but I mean, this was about this was almost as good as it gets. So you go forward with this at a time when, as you mentioned, Little Nicky flopped. Town and Country was not going over very well. Uh, you're having these issues with Michael DeLuca, and you release the first one of these in 2001, and then two, and then three. Obviously, we all know how well they were received. Even going back to the 26-minute preview in, in Cannes, that's when I think the rest of the world caught on that maybe you guys had something really special. What I wanted to ask you, though, is just how you processed from, let's say, opening weekend of the first one, how this was going to change things for you. It, it obviously goes on to make more mo- more money collectively, the trilogy, than I think any other indie movies even came close to ever with the with billions of dollars, all the Oscars for the third one. But starting from opening weekend, as I assume when you realize this is going to change our business. Yeah, we sort of knew that with the caveat that this that Peter Jackson might not have might might not have the chops for it. Yeah, but uh, he, he did. He absolutely came through. Obviously, with, with flying colors. And if you had seen his other movies like Meet the Feebles and Brain Dead and stuff <laughs> like that, you, I mean, I, that's a whole other story. Right, right. But he he absolutely came through incredibly well, and he insisted on things, and we just we supported him across the board. Actually, in, in the I think when we were some problem production problems in the third, the Return of the King, and he wanted to cut out some of the, one of the sequences because it was going to cost too much. And Michael and I both said, "Leave it in. We want it. it's important to the movie. Let's just you just keep doing what you're doing, man." Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was just one of those magical 
things that sometimes happens in business where uh, things just came together the, the right way. So with all the success and the, I mean, Oscar night, how can it be any bigger than when you guys swept all the, I think it was 11 awards for Return of the King and just all of that, you follow that. Now it's not DeLuca. Now it's no Emmerich, that you're, or it's Toby Emmerich that you're, is your production chief in those next few years where you've got Elf and Notebook and Monster-in-Law, Wedding Crashers, Little Children, Fine Line becomes Picture House with Pan's Labyrinth. But I wonder if you can just share your interpretation. How does so much change between the Oscars in early 2004, recognizing the whole trilogy, essentially, and then the unpleasantness that you guys had to deal with in, I guess it would be 2008 when you, when Bucus and you guys had, you know, had this, this parting of ways. What, in your view, happened in those four or five years to lead to that? I think what happened, first of all, I think a creative organization should be small. And we, even at that point, had 550 or 600 people. There was a, a lot of individual hubris and overweening pride altogether that was, uh, that was not healthy. I think that there was a, uh, a lack of accountability, my fault, because I it was not the way I did business. I really believed in and trusted the people that I worked with, and it, that philosophy worked for a while, but it had gotten too big, and too many people thought they were too indispensable. And then I thought, and I, it, there, was, there was some disagreements that went on between the, between the East Coast and West Coast that were not healthy. And I think that it all came back to Jeff Bucus. There was a, a chance for us to sell the new line to somebody else that we were going to buy the new line back because we had a financial, possible financial partner who was going to put up $3 billion we're talking about. It wasn't a number that was actually quoted, but there was, there was a belief that even our, our library was worth that. Yeah. It was time, time to do what they should have done 20 years ago is say, who are these people and what are they doing in our midst? I mean, we, you know, do we really want to have guys still running around distributing movies when we have a perfectly capable, uh, ostensibly perfectly capable uh, marketing and, and sales organization that gets best, better deals? And what are they doing here? Brothers, yeah. yeah. And, and so, and, and then, you know, the, what, what have you done for me lately? What have they got coming up next? I mean, they don't, you know, they don't, they, even the, the, the movie stars that they get are, 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 are not the real movie stars that the world wants. Was there a movie that you think put it over the edge? Was it The Golden Compass? Was it something that was like the last straw? It was never described to me that way. The Golden Compass was something that I was less enthusiastic about. I don't, I, I think it was like, and it was really, uh, even though I completely concurred with it, as Michael did with me, I was really, it was really Michael that really was more, more in favor of it. But it wasn't that it wasn't, didn't come out. It was a good movie. Yeah. The and it pro- did well internationally. Right. But the problem was that like with Lord of the Rings. Insane. Yeah. It did well, inter- it did extremely well internationally. Yeah. And there was this guy in Tennessee or somewhere else who sent things to every 
Baptist organizations, schools, whether they were Baptist by designation or just by you know sentiment, that this that that Pullman is anti-God, and, and and that even if the kids, even if the movie, which I was basically me who said we've got to get this anti-God thing out of here, yeah. it, I'm I'm all for anti-authority. That's 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 youthfulness. That's that's great stuff. But when you, you don't play with God, so we took we took as much of that as out as we could. But and then the response was, yeah, but the kids are going to go to the library to read the books, and then they're going to be irreligious. And the way it was explained in the press, I don't know if this is correct, but that to make the Golden Compass cost more than the three Lord of the Rings films combined, it was no. it was a big bet. That's not not correct. No, it, it, but it did cost it, co it cost more than any single one. Right. I think it cost. Uh, Chris Weiss did a, a quite good job, but it was it, there was no there was also this. I wish we had exercised a little bit more uh, budget. We had trouble getting a, a director that we really wanted. I thought, as I said, Chris was was very good for, for the job, but it cost over $200 million. But the, the, the three Lord of the Rings, which I forgot to tell you, is that the first one that Peter Jackson said you could do for $75 million, ended up costing 125 or 130. The, the second one cost, by that time, it didn't really matter that much, I think around 170. Yeah. And the third one cost like, like 190 million. Oh my God. So, but by that, by, by that time, it was, off, yeah. yeah. So I want to read back to you a quote that I thought was pretty powerful of yours, where this was talking about just, and this is the final new line question, but just a after the meeting with Bucus, where you say, quote, now I understand what it's like when factories close. I mean, hundreds of people who had worked for me as long as 25, 26 years are suddenly given an envelope and told to go home. And I was given an envelope and told to go home too, so I know exactly what the feeling is, close quote. Is there any any words to describe what that's like? You know, this is yeah. your baby. I mean, I yes, it was because I was the only one who was exaggerating because I went home and, believe me, I shed tears. Mm -hmm. But... I had worked hard for it, but I made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I went home feeling crappy mm -hmm. and knowing that this is something that I started and that suddenly, you know, it was, uh, and I had nothing, I, I, you could go into the Warner's lot, there's a, there was a, there's a new line building there. And, uh, you know, the logo that I designed and everything is, so sure, that makes me feel crappy, but I, I also have a, a nice property and I have and, and I'm well situated not guaranteed but I'm well situated for a, a long time yeah and I and I'm pretty old in the middle of all this too so it's uh it's not like I have to uh or I'm, I'm going to be able to work another 50 years to to you know to do something else but I saw people some of whom deserved to be fired anyhow, but uh, but weren't. That was something else. But everybody, you, as I said, it was like a, a it was like a, a corporate funeral parlor. And I'm very acutely aware of what it's like to work for something and work for somebody and find have, have been uh, an important cog in in the machinery to suddenly you know get knocked off. It's, it's a terrible thing, and I I'm extremely sympathetic or at least understanding of, of what happens when you know they you close a car factory or something like that these what do you, what what do you do mm -hmm. it's incredible well on your end of things i think it's amazing that you and michael immediately you know at a time when you could have 
either just stayed home and licked your wounds or retired and done whatever, you guys pretty immediately said, we're back in this. We're not done. We're going to start the, the place where we are right now, Unique Features. And today we're here talking about a movie that in some ways, this is Ambition, your your latest one, is in some ways a comment, I think, on or, or references the whole history that we've been talking about. I and, and what I mean by that is, it makes people wonder if what they're seeing is actually real. That goes back to image. It makes, you know, you're talking about, uh, there's there's a nightmare on Elm Street is, is quoted. I think number two is quoted and referenced in the film. Reefer Madness, there's a poster of it in the background. It's sort of, uh, for people who know what they're looking at and or looking at or, or listening to, a trip not just through this violinist experience, but through your own, right? Yeah, well, it's it's it, and it's very possibly a swan song, but that's what's intended. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it gave some motivation and some emotionality from me to m- making this movie, and also it's meant as a niche movie. It's really meant for millennial women, and I, and I think that's still a very unsatisfied niche that could be very, very successful. I don't know if it'll happen with ambition, but, but more and more pe- filmmakers are understanding who, want, who, want us, who care about putting uh, entertainment on the table, which is what I care about more than anything else coming from the food business, mm-hmm. that um, you, you ask people to, to spend an hour and a half or two hours of the most valuable thing they have, which is their time, and you want to give those people the right people, the, uh, you know, the value for their money. And you mentioned millennial women. That's pretty much who's at the center of this movie. It's all... It's all millennial women, yes. And, and, and I mean, now with the women's movement has taken a whole new... It, it's not... Uh, it, 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 I mean, it's taken a, gotten a heft and a momentum that I've never seen before. What do you make of it all? I mean, obviously, on one hand, it's, it's swept out Weinstein, who we've talked about, and a lot of other people, but can you quite believe it? Can you quite wrap your head around all the changes that have happened recently? No, I feel the business about abusing employees is a terrible thing. I've never, I, 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 I can only use my own perspective. It's just something I, I, I couldn't imagine doing and I, I, I wouldn't do it. On the other hand, I have had also people say, well, women never had a chance in the business. I don't understand that because we've had women... Uh, yeah, Donna Langley right now is... Well, Donna Langley and there's always been... I've been looking for qualification. That's you know, you would, but you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose Peter Jackson either. But it was a little bit too much button pushing going on. But I'm also sympathetic to the stories, and I do know of that many of them are true. Uh, it's just that I, I think it's, it's time to understand. I don't believe in affirmative action. Let me put it that way. Uh-huh. I, I guess that makes me into uh, ultra conservative. But I, I think that people, I, I believe in merit. Yeah. I, and I believe there's an enormous number of, 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 of females that can do great things. And I'm incredibly impressed with, you know, with the, with the brain power and creative power that a, a female perspective can bring to the movie business. And I, uh, I would do everything I could that was justified for the, for the project. The project is the baby. They're the mother. I'm the mother. I'm, we're all, we're all, we're, all we're, the, we're the creative parents. But as I said, that you, when you make a movie, 
you feel like you are, everybody feels, whether it's the, the, the grip, the, the, the sound department, most everybody who's working on feel starts taking it, feels a, a sense of paternity or maternity uh, for what they're doing. And what we're all trying to do is to throw creative genes at this child. And the, the, uh, the metaphor I've chosen to use is to say, it's like, you don't know how it's gonna get born. If it's gonna be a stumble bum on, on the Bowery or a captain of industry someplace. And, but everybody, everybody's disappointed when a film doesn't work and it doesn't matter the color of the skin, the, the sex of the, of the, of the creator. It's, it's, all, it's just get, get the best one you can. Last, last, last question. Earlier this year in, in March, uh, very sadly, we lost Michael Lynn. And I wonder if that moment and the, the tributes and everything that's followed has made you think back personally just about all that you to achieve together and his legacy and how you both many years from now, hopefully when we're all gone, will, uh, will be remembered that what we've talked about here, what you, what you built over the 52 years since new line was started in that, in that walk up. Well, I think about it a lot, but I don't take any more credit, any more credit than, than I think that, than I think I'm due. And I, I'm kind of hard on myself that way. As I said, I don't know what I would have done if I was decided to go out and, to Hollywood and get a job with Sam Arkoff. I don't know where. I know a lot of guys who did, yeah. and they stumbled around for the rest of their lives. Right. Uh, I think if, if I've had any skill, it's just to make the idea of working together an affirmative and enjoyable uh, situation. And I at least am proud of, of having assembled a group of people who, you know, they may have they've been totally different in all kinds of ways. And I've had to endure, if I've had done anything that really took balls, it was to have had some people that were really hard to work with and made my life completely miserable. <laughs> but so what? I mean, I'm, I'm still standing and uh, I want to I give thanks to those people. Well, thank you so much. This has really been special. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a, a real compliment. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.